Heart transplants are amazing. They're amazing, but they are tedious. Typically, a donor's heart is removed and then transported on ice in a cooler uh, to the patient in need. And it's a race against the clock, uh, so speedy transportation is critical. I found out that 8 out of 10 available donor hearts never make it to a patient in need. Now, doctors are experimenting with new technology. Transmedic developed what's called an organ care system, which keeps a donor's heart warm and functioning, which is just out of this world, inside of a controlled and artificial environment until it can be implanted into the patient, which extends the viability of the heart significantly. For the first time, this machine allows a, a, a vital organ to live and function outside of a human body. It's amazing stuff, amazing science. It, it could revolutionize heart transplants and help tons of people. This is good news, and this is true news, but how might it be helpful news? This machine becomes helpful news when a patient has their old heart removed and a new heart implanted. Then the machine uh, makes a practical difference in people's lives. This illustrates the gospel. The gospel is good news. It is true news but it becomes helpful news when, as Ezekiel 11 and 36 describe, God removes a person's old and dead heart of stone and replaces it with a new and living heart of flesh. God even puts a new spirit into them. That's why the gospel truly helps someone. It becomes effectual for them. It becomes the incessant beat of power in their life. Like a heart, the gospel works inside of a believer to give them strength and power every day. The gospel works to compel them to walk by the Spirit so they will not gratify the desires of the flesh, but instead put them to death. The gospel is not merely helpful for the next life. It is helpful in the routine of this life. In week one... I explained the gospel in plain and simple terms, and I showed why it was good news. But the gospel can only be good news if it is also true news. And so in week two, I explained why the gospel is true news. But what good is the gospel if it doesn't actually ever help anyone? The gospel is good news because it actually helps people who believe. It actually helps people who believe. I think most professing Christians are going to understand and agree that the gospel is helpful in terms of rescuing them from hell and assuring them entrance into heaven. But does the gospel accomplish our eternal bliss and then leave us to struggle through this, this life on our own, by our own strength, by our own power? You see, living the Christian life is really hard. It is hard. It is rigorous. Yes, heaven will be great, but oftentimes heaven seems so distant, so in the future, and, and, the, and the temptations and trials of this life are so close, and they're unrelenting, and they're exhausting. Can the gospel help us right now? I think too many professing Christians miss this. They don't understand how the gospel helps them in the routine of life. 
every morning when you wake up, you are greeted by temptations and trials that are more powerful than you and could wreck your life. And every morning, the gospel's power is right there to help you triumph over them. Oh, that we would trust in the gospel to deliver us from evil every day and give us superior joy in obeying God. My prayer is that the gospel will be power for you uh, to help you stand firm in the temptations and trials of everyday life. So let's begin here. The gospel is power. The gospel is power. Now, this is my son Peter's toy John Deere uh, tractor with front loader. Now, we in the past few weeks have needed to have some pretty serious work done on our septic system. Now, thankfully, we have not had to dish out tens of thousands of dollars to get this fixed. They were able to do it for a lot less. But imagine that the septic guy shows up to our house and he begins to try to dig up uh, our septic system in the backyard with this little toy tractor. Well, that, that's not going to be very good because this doesn't have the power to get the job done. That's why the septic guy backed up the trailer and he unloaded an excavator. I mean, this excavator had power. This had earth-moving power. It was, it was pretty cool. It had sufficient power to do the job. The gospel is good news because it has sufficient power to do the job. We struggle with things that are too big for us. We can't handle them. But the gospel provides us power that we otherwise do not have. Romans 1.16 calls the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that for those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. You may remember Paul telling us in Philippians 2.13 that it is God who works in us to will and to work That which pleases him. The gospel is power. Power. You will be sin's pawn or patsy until you actually believe and trust that the gospel is sufficient power for your victory over sin. Secondly, the gospel changes your identity. People frequently reduce the gospel to changing a few behaviors or checking off a religious to-do list. That's not gospel and that's not helpful. What good is it if a few of our behaviors change but our heart remains dead in sin and we remain enemies with God? What good is that? The gospel must fundamentally change our identity so that we are in right standing with God and subsequently empowered by God to walk in obedience as his beloved children. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 explain this identity change like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. 
Someone is in Christ or united to Christ when they receive the gospel by grace through faith. In that inseparable union with Christ, that person becomes a new creation, a new creature, a new person. The old person passes away and new life begins. And when Paul wrote, all this is from God, he meant that God alone, by his sovereign grace and power alone, generates the new creation. God reconciles the person to himself through Christ. The old person was an enemy of God, but now the the new person is reconciled with God, a child of God. Only the gospel can do that transformation. Only the gospel can change a person's identity. Now, sometimes I recommend that you study Romans 6. Read Romans 6. Maybe read it and and meditate on it this week. It explains very well how the gospel transforms someone's identity. It talks about union with Christ in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. Our old self is crucified with Christ, which, which breaks our enslavement to sin. But we are also made alive. With Christ in his resurrection. We used to be dead in sin, but now we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, and sin no longer has dominion over us. The identity change brought about by the gospel positions us in power and in victory so that we can experience the the power of the gospel as we live out our true identity. This is why Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, instructs to put off the old self and to put on the new self. See, God created our new self after his likeness. But then we must continually put on that new self. We must strive to become more and more who we really are in Christ. Do you understand? God has united you to Christ and made us holy, sanctified us, set us apart, and yet we still struggle with sin. So the gospel continues to work in us to make us more holy, to make us what God has already made us. That's called sanctification. So though we still sin, we are no longer defined by our sin. We are defined by Christ. Therefore, our life is a process, a process of the gospel helping us become who God made us to be. Dr. Michael Kruger wrote an excellent little blog post titled Saint or Sinner, Rethinking the Language of Our Christian Identity. You should read that. It's on Facebook. If you have the chance, look it up online, read it. He makes the observation that nowhere in Scripture is the church referred to collectively as sinners. Nowhere. Nor is a believer ever referred to as a sinner. Now, there is 1 Timothy 1.15 where Paul referred to himself as the foremost of sinners or the chief of sinners, but Dr. Kruger suggests that Paul was referring to his old self. 
Scripture refers to believers not as sinners, but as saints, holy ones. Now, of course, Christians still sin. In fact, sometimes at a very alarming and startling rate and pace. We sin, but their sin is out of character. It's, it, it's different from who they are, who God has made them in Christ, who God has created them to be in Christ. Sin is no longer fitting for them. Dr. Kruger, I, I really like how he put it. Listen, he says, Paul wants Christians to think of themselves in regard to their new natures, not their old. They are saints who sometimes sin, not sinners who sometimes do right. End of quote. You will not stand firm in the temptations and trials of everyday life until you understand who you are in Christ and until you strive with the power of the gospel to be who you have been created to be. When you realize that God, by His sovereign grace, has changed your spiritual DNA, you, you come to believe that, that you do indeed have power in Christ to endure the temptations and trials of your life. And that is helpful. That is so helpful. So now let's, let's get practical. The gospel helps you stand firm in the temptations and the trials of everyday life. When you're faced with the opportunity to be lazy, what power do you have to be productive instead. When you desire to look at pornography, what power do you have to instead serve your spouse selflessly? When you're tempted with gluttony, what power do you have to be satisfied with enough? When you want to yell at your out-of-control children, they're going crazy and wrecking the house, what power do you have to instead encourage them with loving and firm correction? When you are overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and you start to shut down, what power do you have to choose peace for your soul? Pick any temptation, pick any struggle that you face on any given day. Do you have the power to win? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says that because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is, get this, able to help those who are being tempted. When you're at your weakest point, when you have no strength, when things just get too much for you, do you really believe that in that moment Jesus has sufficient power to help you? Do you believe Faith says, yes, he has the power. Unbelief says, I'm just doomed. I have to go down this road. Nothing can help me now. Hebrews 4, verse 16 tells us to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Now, why on earth would we do that? Listen, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's why we go to the throne of grace. We need help. 
and he can help us. Have, have we forgotten that Jesus is always with us to help us in our struggles? Have, have we begun to think that some temptations and some trials are just too powerful for even Jesus to help us with? The rest of the time, I want to give you nine simple observations from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, that reveal how the gospel can help you stand firm every day. Number one, your help is the strength of the Lord, not your own strength. Your help is the strength of the Lord. Verse 10 says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Your strength is not enough. None of us is strong enough But when the might of the Lord becomes your strength, then you are strong enough. Instead of you mustering up strength from within you, trust that the Lord will make you strong. That's faith in action. You know, you know, you've studied scripture, you've heard he stood in temptation. He was without sin. You know that he can do it. So cry out for his strength, which is sufficient. Trust him and, and, and we should expect that Jesus will show up and give us the help that we need. Expect it. Number two, wearing the whole gospel armor of God is what enables you to stand firm in the temptations and trials of everyday life. Now, there is a reason why our government sends our soldiers out on the battlefield with more than a plastic butter knife. There's a reason for that. They equip the soldiers with armor and weaponry that fit the task so that they can win. Win. Dominate. Spiritually speaking now, why face the temptations and trials of your life with a butter knife? You won't be ready to win. You need armor. You need weaponry that is fit for the task. Because every day is war. Every day is spiritual war. You know that. Verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God. The Greek word is panoplia, uh, referring to the, a complete suit of armor worn by a soldier in battle. You can't put on one or two pieces. You need to put on all of the armor. And then you need to expect to stand firm because you're wearing the armor. You need to wear all of the armor. Then you're ready for combat. Then you're positioned for victory. Now, why wear armor? Verse 11, that you may be able be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you know that the devil right now is scheming against us, against the church, to bring the church down? He's smart. He's cunning. He's quick. He he looks impressive. He's scheming. He cleverly offers many, 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 many enticing pleasures to us to lure us away from Christ in order to kill us. Paul used the word dunamai. It's a wonderful word. Dynamite, you might hear that in dunamai. Ability, power. Your ability and power to stand against the diabolical schemes of the devil depends upon you wearing the whole armor of God. It's the only thing that can save you. It's the only thing that can protect you. You're not wearing it. You're done on the battlefield. 
Jump down to verse 13. It says this, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. I want you to imagine thousands of armed soldiers surging towards you with adrenaline pumping. They want the fortress, and it is your job to defend that fortress. If you give up that fortress, devastation will ensue. You have to fend them off. You begin to question as you watch them come across the battlefield, can I do this? (laughs) Am I even able to win against these odds? Taking up the whole armor of God is for a purpose. Can you see what the purpose is in verse 13? Verse 13, in order that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You wear the gospel armor of God so that you can resist evil, so that you can conquer evil, so you don't have to cave in in fear, so you don't have to cave in with cowardice, so that you stand strong against the worst opposition at the most inopportune times. Verse 13 promises you that if you're wearing the armor, you are completely capable, able, powerful of standing firm with strength, with valor against the surges of the enemy. Oh, how glorious to show strength and valor on the battlefield and to find yourself in the end the victor. How glorious. God gives you the gospel to help you in the battle. Um, Speaking about the phrase, in the evil day, John Calvin wrote this. By this expression, he rouses them from security, bids them prepare themselves for hard, painful, and dangerous conflicts, and at the same time, animates them with the hope of victory, for amidst the greatest dangers, they will be safe. Isn't that great? Calvin's got some nuggets. Temptation is so tough to fight, and that is why God gives you the armor of the gospel. We must wear that gospel armor, and then we must trust it to do its job. I'll say this about verse 12. Verse 12 kind of sounds like a blockbuster horror film, uh, but it's actually reality. It's real. We are engaged in close spiritual combat with fierce spiritual enemies that are stronger than we are. We need gospel armor to win, for in the gospel, Christ is victor over all his enemies. And when we stand with Christ, we too are victors, more than conquerors. In verse 14, stand is a command. Paul commanded the Ephesians to stand. But then he explained how they could do it. Paul introduced the essential pieces of armor needed to stand firm. Every single piece is necessary. Every single piece is helpful and has a purpose. And Paul explicitly described how all of it helps us stand firm. Apart from the belt, breastplate, 
shoes, shield, helmet, and sword. That the gospel provides. (laughs) There is no help. You're on your own. And you're going to get owned. We need the armor. You see, the armor is a metaphor for what we receive from God in the gospel. So you need this armor. Number three, wearing the belt of truth will help you stand firm. Wearing the belt of truth will help you stand firm. The belt was very important for an ancient warrior. It protected his lower abdomen and and secured his garments and his sword to his body, which provided him mobility and confidence and surety. The truth of the gospel holds everything together for us. You must have truth. The gospel is good news and it is helpful news because it is true news. If you want to be mobile and confident and sure in the struggle of life, you must be entirely preoccupied with the truth. You must study it. You must memorize it. You must think it, speak it, trust it, cherish it. The truth is very helpful to you because it holds everything together. And you need it to do that. Wear it. Wear the truth. Number four, wearing the breastplate of righteousness will help you stand firm. A breastplate was worn by a soldier in order to protect their vitals, their organs. Righteousness offers vital protection. Now, two things come to mind with righteousness. First, the imputed righteousness of Christ protects us. You see, God counts us righteous. In his sight, not because of any righteousness inside of us, but because of the righteousness of Christ that was credited or imputed to us by faith and the accusations of Satan. This is how it helps you. All the accusations of Satan telling you that you are no good. This is not who you are. You do not belong to God. You will not persevere to the end. You are going to wimp out. You are going to fail. You can't do this. All those accusations cannot penetrate Christ's righteousness, the armor of Christ's righteousness, and that his righteousness is yours by faith. Second, we must do what is righteous. Do what is righteous by the Spirit's power provided in the gospel. Do you realize, I wonder how many times we really think about this in depth. I don't think I do much. Do you realize that an obedient lifestyle protects us from harm in incalculable ways? If we just do what God has asked us to do, what we are spared from, the protection we receive just by being obedient and righteous, in indulging in sin, just letting, I'm just going to do whatever I want whenever I want. Indulging in sin whenever we want, may seem relatively harmless because, you see, the impact of that is not always immediate. We we don't always feel it right there at that moment and see how devastating it is. But it is always careless and it is always dangerous. And there are always consequences. Always. Always, always, always. So these words should echo in our souls, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We're talking about death here. This is serious business. Even if it appears harmless at first, is obedience, is righteousness really that helpful? 
Well, Psalm 512 answers this way. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The safest and most favorable place on earth is inside the will of God. Number five, wearing the readiness given by the gospel of peace will help you stand firm. Imagine fighting the enemy on rough and rugged terrain in your bare feet. Now, a pebble gets in your shoe, and we all, we all start crying about that. It's annoying. Let alone bare feet on rugged terrain. You see, armies used to plant these sharp objects in the ground so that they would penetrate the feet of enemy soldiers. Sometimes rain made the battlefield slippery. If a soldier's feet were bare and lacerated, bruised, bleeding, and throbbing in pain because of the terrain, or if they were unable to, to grip in and, and to, to, to stick and hold ground. Soldiers would lose speed. They'd lose agility. They'd lose stability. Calvin again noted this. A rough road and many other obstacles retard our progress. And we are discouraged by the smallest annoyance. On these accounts, Paul holds out the gospel as the fittest means for undertaking and performing the expedition. The gospel is the means. The gospel of peace gives readiness to our feet to hold our ground with firmness and strength, to push ahead in battle, to lose no ground. Now, peace may be a little bit odd at first to be mentioned in the middle of militaristic language. It kind of seems a little out of place. But understand, the gospel gives us peace with God, which means God becomes our ally. So God stands with us in battle. Without peace with God, God is our enemy and he's against us. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He stands with the humble. But peace with God through the gospel protects our stability in life because God is our ultimate ally. Number six, carrying the shield of faith will help you stand firm. Ancient warriors carried Uh, Shields to protect them from incoming arrows and spears and weapon strikes. Shields were constructed of wood, and then they were covered with either leather or metal or a combination of the two. Now, imagine an archer shooting a flaming arrow that sticks into the wood, and there it's on fire. Well, the soldier could either drop the shield and try to pull out the flaming arrow, but what does that do? That exposes him to the shots. And then what if he leaves it in and it burns through and torches his shield? You see, both are bad. It must stand up to this. A shield that extinguishes fiery arrows, that's amazing. We want that. And that's why some of the soldiers would soak their shields in water, actually. The evil one picks up the arrow of a temptation, lust, pride, um, You choose, envy, lying, and he sets it ablaze, and he readies his bow, and he pulls it back, and he lets it fly, and he shoots at you. He's shooting at you. What's going to stop that fiery arrow from piercing your heart? Faith in Christ will stop every single arrow, every single one. When you trust in Christ to protect you, folks, He actually protects you. 
He actually protects you. You need to carry this shield at all times because it is effective. 1 John 5, 4 says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Our faith overcomes the world. It's, it's not some nebulous faith in whatever. Well, I have, some, I have faith in some orb that is out there. This is not nebulous faith. What makes the shield of faith effective is the object of the faith, Christ. Whenever the arrows of temptations fly, my friends, by faith, hide behind Christ. Hide in Christ. Number seven, wearing the helmet of salvation will help you stand firm. A blow to the head could be fatal. So soldiers wore helmets. If an enemy strikes your head in this spiritual battle, what deflects the blow? What do you have in place to deflect the blow of that? It is the promise of your final salvation. I like how John MacArthur explained it. He gave three phases of salvation corresponding to the three tenses of salvation in Scripture. Saved, being saved, will be saved. Listen to what he said. So the first phase is justification. Salvation from the penalty of sin. The second phase is sanctification. Salvation from the dominating power of sin. But there's a third phase of salvation, and that is to be freed from the presence of sin. And that speaks of our glorification. The hope and security of your future salvation protects you against insecurity and anxiety in the battle. If you're distracted because you're sitting there sucking your thumb worrying about the finality or the irrevocability of your salvation, you will be vulnerable and ineffective in battle. Even slight blows to the head can take a soldier out of the fight. Our hope and security in the perseverance of the saints gives confidence that no blow is going to kill us. No blow is going to take us out of the battle, and we can continue to fight because God will continue to preserve us. God will continue to protect us. That's helpful. That's helpful. The belt, the breastplate, the shoes, the shield, and the helmet, they're all defensive. How do you deliver blows to the enemy? What are you going to strike with? What offensive weapon do you have to force the enemy to flee? The gospel gives you a sharp and mighty sword. Number eight, wielding the sword of the spirit. God's word will help you stand firm. The sword referred to here is a short sword, probably around 18 inches or so, and it was used in close combat to, to take quick and lethal stabs and slices. Uh, that was the idea of it. Your combat weapon in the clash with sin and evil is the sword of the Holy Spirit, the Bible, God's word. You have no way to fight off the enemy without this sharp sword. Now, Matthew 4 describes Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We probably know the story fairly well. In this scene, we watch Jesus fulfilling the covenant with perfect righteousness and obedience. His mind was discerning. His heart was pure. His focus was sharp. How did he fight off Satan? Satan's schemes. He interpreted the scripture correctly and wielded it to dismember Satan's tactics. Jesus stood firm, allowing the truth of God's word interpreted and applied rightly to cut Satan down. 
Matthew 4.11 says, then the devil left him. Jesus won with the sword of the Spirit. They say defense wins championships. Well, I guess I know what they mean, but you know what? The name of the game is putting more points on that scoreboard than the opponent. And if you don't do that, there's nothing your defense is going to do. We need to score. We need offense. What is your plan of attack when temptations and trials attack? What's your offense? Do you have a plan? Are you ready to stab and slice with the sword of Scripture? Five minutes here and there, whenever we can make time for it, that is not how to wield the sword. That will do you very little good. It'll do you some good. It'll do you very little good. A dear brother encouraged me not that long ago, don't put down the sword. That's what he told me, don't put down the sword. You can't lay it down. There's never a moment where you could say, ah, I think I'll just put it down, it's feeling pretty heavy right now, because you need it to fight and you need it to stand firm. Don't put down the sword. The last point, it's not a part of the armor, but it is an essential part of the battle plan. Number nine, Praying in the spirit with alertness will help you stand firm. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The gospel equips us for warfare. Then we fight. Then we fight. We fight with the sword of the spirit and we fight with prayer in the spirit. To to stop praying is to stop fighting. You know, a moment of my heart to yours, I'm not fighting right now in some ways because I don't think that my prayer life matches the intensity of the struggle I have. Anybody with me? All right, so are we going to fight? We got to fight. We fight with the sword of the Spirit. We fight with prayer in the Spirit. To stop praying is to stop fighting. We must keep alert. We must persevere. And we must plead with God over and over again. Even if it feels like we just did this five minutes ago, we must plead again. And not just for ourselves. We must plead for the other soldiers on the battlefield, the saints. Can you see the gospel in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20? Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, God's word, prayer in the spirit. All of this armor is yours when you receive and trust in the gospel. God graciously dresses you in this armor to protect you in combat. Temptations and trials, they're gonna come. They are coming. You're in them now. You're fighting and fighting They're going to come every day of the week. They are unrelenting, and the battle is exhausting. But you do not fight alone. Oh, no, you don't. You do not fight alone. Christ is our commander. Christ is our victor. He is our strength. He is our might. And as he stands, we all stand because we are united to him. That's why we stand in victory. Now, how does this transfer very quickly to your life? You and I need help. Don't you try to do this on your own. If you do, you're toast. You're done. We need help. We cannot possibly slay the carnal desires of our flesh, nor the force of many temptations, nor the schemes of the devil. Our human effort is simply not enough. 
We need supernatural help. And the good news of the gospel is that help. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, God's word, and prayer in the spirit. Right there is all that you need to stand firm. That's what you need. And you have it in Christ. You can stand firm every day with those things. So if you're struggling with something right now that just won't die, it just keeps coming back. Again and again, you're like, haven't you died yet? Nope, it's there to fight yet again. Make sure you're dressed in all of this armor. And make sure you're ready to fight. Fight. The gospel is right there to help you as you Father, thank you so much for your clear word in Scripture that we are equipped to fight. I am pathetic on the battlefield. I jump in foxholes, cover my head, and suck my thumb in the fetal position. I, I'm armed. I'm ready to go, and so are my brothers and sisters, and we fight together. It's not just Christ that we stand with. We stand with other soldiers who have our backs. We must pray for each other. So God, I'm asking that you do a wonderful work of grace in us that we would wear the armor well and swing that sword with all of our might and that, God, we'd pray for supernatural help coming from one place, you, our commander-in-chief, our general. Christ went to the battlefield. And praise God, he won. Amen.